the second in a series on abortion politics and halakha, which I want to be clear is distinct from the shir, which is just on abortion and halakha. Uh, and the question is, what is the, what is, what are the ways in which the introduction of halakha into politics changes the way in which halakha consider, uh, conceives of itself? So last week I made three different arguments. Uh, the first two were claims that even if we know what the halakha is, it does not necessarily follow that we know what the law, enforceable law, ought to be. That we have a Jewish interest in constitutional process and uh, in, in, the, in the framework of consent of the governed, and that we have a Jewish interest in equal protection of the law as a fundamental principle of the legitimacy of a state, of a state regime. Um, but then I argued a third argument, which is what we're going to pick up today, internal to halakha. Uh, what I said was that you could, you could develop an internal halachic constraint, and I argued very strongly for that internal halachic constraint, that the outcome of an ethical issue of, of prime importance should not permit differences between the outcome for Jews and the, and the outcome for non-Jews. I didn't make this uh, explicit last time, but I'll say it explicitly this time, that there is a parallel concept in American constitutional law, which is the notion that certain kinds of classifications are subject to various degrees of scrutiny, the highest level of strict scrutiny, uh, where if you have a difference in outcome, we, we, we ask for very, very strong explanations as to why that, why that difference in outcome should be tolerated constitutionally. Um, right, uh, with special classifications, race obviously being the primary classification in United, in United States law. And so, already? <laughs> So one of the questions that, you sh that is raised by this right, is that um, there are times when halakha can distinguish between citizens and non-citizens, which is when we're arguing for the halakha of, I guess, of a Jewish state, which conceives of, itself, which conceives of only Jews as citizens. And then there's, there are different frameworks when you're arguing about the halakha of a, Jewish, of a state that has a Jewish identity, but conceives of, its, of all its citizens, Jewish and non-Jewish, as citizens. And yet a third condition where we, where, where we are arguing halakhically for what the outcome should be in a state where Jews are citizens among others, and the state has no particular Jewish identity. So um, I'm arguing in the context of the United States, where any argument made by Jews has to be an argument that cannot distinguish between Jews as citizens and others as non-citizens. So the distinction between citizens and non-citizens is not relevant to the argument I'm making in this context. Whether or not such a distinction could possibly apply to abortion in other contexts, I really don't know. Um, I'm not going to bracket that for now. Okay. Uh, isn't there one other, the, this yeah. other way, you can think about it the other way, which is that a law which is equal for everyone with equal protection, that for Jews, there could be a halachic reasoning behind a rationale. For non-Jews, have to come at it from a different angle. You come to the same conclusion, but you come at it for a totally different reason. Good, excellent. Right. So Ari Bahar asked me a very similar question before, before, right? That uh, and that will go to the heart of what we want to do today and and next week, uh, which is. If you have a constraint on the outcome, does that mean that the process is necessarily the same? And what I'm going to do in the beginning of this year, hopefully, is to some degree blow up the outcome, and in a way, in a way that will enable us to think about that more directly. So it's absolutely the right question. Um, so here's how I got to that last week. Last week I said that there is, um, right, this is page four of the, uh, of the, of the source sheet. Um, I got to it by saying as follows. There, the, there's a drasha on the verse of Genesis 9:6. Shofech dama adam ba adam demoy shofech kibetzelam elokim asah to adam. On Sanhedrin 57b, Rabbi Shmuel derives from a, a cross reading of the verse dama adam ba adam that this prohibition extends to fetuses, for not and this verse relates to non-Jews. Then we have a principle, a Talmudic principle, which says that everything which is um, forbidden to non-Jews is also forbidden to Jews, unless you have a really good reason. And what I argued was that the really good reason has to be set up against the reason for the law. And in this case, the reason for the law is given in the verse, Ki Adam, 
And that sets up such a high barrier, right? How do you, right, how do you override that there should be, there really should be no way to introduce distinctions. And then I showed you that Rav Eliezer Melamed, the author of Pini Halakha, uh, reaches essentially the same conclusion. Um, okay, but now I want to blow that up. The way to blow it up is as follows. This applies only so long as the prohibition for abortion is derived from the verse, Shafeich dam adam adam So long as abortion is for Jews and non-Jews is seen as, is seen, is seen as a subsidiary of homicide or of bloodshedding, whatever term you want to use. Once we remove abortion from the realm of that, so then we no longer have the verse. Right? Adam is a rationale for the prohibition against, right, for the prohibition against Shafeich dam adam. But if there's another reason for abortion, then it wouldn't necessarily apply. Okay, that logic, that logic is reasonably clear. Okay, now, that doesn't mean it obviously tolerates differences. It depends what the rationale is that we develop for abortion, for, right, for, uh, for other pro pro uh, prohibitions of abortion. If, the abort if it turns out that, let's say, a prohibition against abortion is roughly analogous to the abortion against wearing shotness, to the prohibition against wearing shotness, so then, okay, right, we are perfectly comfortable saying that Jews, right, that um, the Jews can't wear shotness and non-Jews can. And if it worked out in some obscure way that some way Jews, right, Jews could wear some kind of shotness and non-Jews couldn't, the equivalent of what we saw in Kashrus, where Jews can, right, where Jews can eat in, uh, the meat of an organ that died betw between the moment of shkita and the moment of death, whereas non-Jews can't, okay. It doesn't bother us because it's not an ethical issue. So when we look at other ways in which we can talk about abortion, we have to ask ourselves the question, do we believe that we are in the context of ethics, or do we believe we're in the context of something that is parochially religious, which just happens to have consequences? Okay, so now we need to know one other, one other, one other background fact, which is that, um, in general, halakha is, has a much more uh, complex, nuanced, sophisticated um, discourse about halakha for Jews than it does for non-Jews for the fairly simple reason that it mattered <laughs> in practice. People asked questions, people bothered writing. There's much more data all the way, th all the way through. So the question then is when, when, que when questions come up as to what the halakha should be for non-Jews, so there are, a, a, there, there are a couple of things that um, obviously appear. One is that post-Talmudically you have essentially two attempts at really addressing halakha for non-Jews in a comprehensive way. You have the Ramam Hilchot Melachim, and we can take a look, right, there are lots of books of the Ramam, and then there's that, you know, then there's the four or five chapters at the end that deal with Hilchot Pnei Noach. Um, and then you have the Orach HaShulchan HaAtid, which isn't even in the Space Matter, I don't believe. Right, so we have a 13th century, 12th century work, and a 20th century work. That's it. There are occasional discussions in between, but there's no real attempt at developing halacha. Uh, now that creates an issue in terms of authority. When it comes to Jewish law, the Ramam doesn't always win. Right? We have a whole, we have all, we have whole, whole realms of alternate interpretations that disagree with the Rambam. And so the question is, do we automatically paskin like the Rambam in terms of Hilchot Beinoch, because that's all there is? Or do we say, no, actually, no, we're not ready for Psak? Because we, right, for Psak, we really want lots of voices, and those voices are all missing. We have to sort of imagine what if Rashi, Tosfot, and right, everyone else like that weighed, weighed in on these issues in the same way. This I should credit to my son in law, Yehuda Gale, who uh, framed it, I think, well, that the Ramam is perhaps given disproportionate influence in Hilchab de Noach simply because of availability. Um, second question is. When we have a statement about the laws of Bein Noach and a statement about the laws of Jews, so what we'll often find is that the statement of the law of Bein Noach is much simpler and less nuanced, and the statement about and the statement um, about Jews has many much more development. So we have a number of options. One option is to say, oh, that's because the law for non-Jews is much simpler and less and right, less complicated than the law for Jews, and the other is that we should read all the complications of the law into Jews into the law for non-Jews. Just it hasn't, it hasn't been done yet, but of course, if the same conversation happened, the same sort of nuance would have developed. All right, so that, right, those, are, those are two fundamentally different approaches. Uh, if you want an analogy, right, one of my, uh, my favorite terms in uh, te teaching Talmud is, is um, now I'm blanking out, um, 
I'm blanking. That's really bad. Never was the term I always thought, but with Masni in it. Kitanami Masnisin. Kitan, right? Which which Kitanami Masnisin is a term in the Gemara that goes as follows. I have a rule stated in the Mishnah which has no qualifications at all. It's just right. X is Y, and then I have a Brita which states the same rule but has a qualification. X is Y only when. And then the Gemara poses that as a contradiction. And the Gemara's solution is, no, you should read the Mishnah as if it had the qualification of the Brayta. So that is a way to read Hilchah Bnei Noach, to say, okay, when Hilchah Bnei Noach are stated, absolutely, and, Hilcha, right, and laws for Jews are stated with lots of qualifications, we can say, okay, you know what, that teaches us that the law for Rabbi Noach, even though those qualifications are not stated, we're supposed to read them in. Or we could say, no, there's supposed to be, there's supposed to be a vast difference. Okay. With regard to non-Jews, we have this one statement on page four, which is that, according to Rabbi Ishmael, it is a capital crime of shvichut tamim for non-Jews to, uh, to, right, to kill fetuses. There is absolutely no mention of at what stage of the process that applies. So now the question is, does that mean it applies at all stages of the process? Does it mean it applies only at one stage of the process? Uh, or is it not a binary shift? So here we need another idea uh, in halakha, which is complicated, uh, which is the difference between um, analog and digital switches, I guess, is probably the way of presenting it. Um, so I usually talk about this in the realm of um, violating Shabbat to save a life. So we, right, we all know it, right? If not, I think the students have been sort of teaching this, uh, um, that if something is defined as pikoach nefesh on Shabbat, then you can violate Shabbat to, right, to, uh, right, to save a person. And if something is not defined as Bikulach Nefesh, then you can't violate Shabbat. That's like a very hard digital, right? It's a, it's a system which only has an on-off switch. And it works really well in some cases. And yet, you know, there, there are all these cases that are somewhat, like, are sort of Bikulach, right, a sort of Bikulach Nefesh. And you, you, know, you, you have an instinctive feeling that maybe there should be some things for which you can violate Shabbat some ways and not others. Easy exemption is to say you can violate Shabbat if right, Shabbat in a manner which is the Rabbanan and not Deoraita. Now we're not talking about a case which, where, where the life is different, right? You know, where it's not, we're not talking a case where it's, you're talking about a lesser risk than a risk to life. We're talking about a lesser risk to life. So the problem is, since right, since Bikulach Nefesh on Shabbat is defined as even right, say even 0.001 percent, so 0.001 percent lets you violate all 39 Melachot at a shot if need be. And if you're going to say, oh, but not 0.001 percent, then that's not going to let you violate anything. Right, this is a problem faced by the Noda Behuda, but he ends up with a completely binary system. But you could understand the same system in, a, in an analog way and say, you know what? You can do more. You can, right, you, can, you can take greater risks of violating Shabbat, the greater your chances of saving a life. Uh, right? You can try and set up a system like that. We haven't so far halachically on paper, but often um, digital switches in, um, on paper turn into analog switches in reality because people, in fact, pass in the questions to some degree based on a sliding scale. So when we talk about, right, we can ask the question simply when it comes to, right, an abortion, either is shrikhut damim or it is not. And if it's shrikhut damim, then it's a capital crime and really just about nothing will justify it. And if it's not shrikhut damim, then, it, right, then it's permissible and you can do anything, right? Or we could say instinctively, you know what, it feels to us like this, like, you know, like, you know it, it's closer to shrikhut damim, the later it gets in the process, but that's squishy. Uh, or we could try to develop a, a digital switch, but with many more stages, right? So it's more, sen- it's more sensitive, uh, right? We'll have to, de- right? well, we haven't done that for Shabbat. We don't have a, we don't, we don't have a sort of, we don't have a sort of pikoch nefesh for Shabbat and a really more sort of pikoch nefesh and a lot, and a really close, we don't have that on Shabbat, but we could try to do that for abortion. Okay, and the easiest way to do that and the way in which people seem to have some kind of intuitive sense and that intuition was reified into law in Roe v. Wade is by trying to develop stages along the process of fetal development. Um, and then you can look at halakha and say, look, halakha recognizes for certain purposes distinctions, among, distinctions of various stages of development and different kinds of things, and we could try to map that into that kind of analog system, or we could say, you know what, no, you're wrong. Those things have nothing to do with the question of shrikhut tamim. They're all for entirely different purposes. 
Right? Really, the question of whether it's whether it's shvichut damim or not, that's a black and white question. And then there are other issues that, that where fetal development makes a difference, but they don't affect the fundamental question. The fundamental question we have to ask for permissibility of abortion is, is it homicide of some sort or is it not? Then we have a second question that we have to ask in this context, which is whatever those other considerations that we're now going to bring in towards, um, towards trying to create an analog switch in halakha, to what extent are those considerations ethical questions that prevent us from making distinctions or have a strong presumption against distinctions between Jews and non-Jews? Or to what extent might they involve things where we're comfortable making differences between Jews and non-Jews? Because they, they don't implicate our sense of, of universal ethics in the same way. Yes? Okay, so every time, every time we look at a halachic source, we're going to have to ask ourselves, are we interested in its outcome or in its basis? So right, the easiest way to talk about this is, let's suppose we could find a halachic source which made some kind of distinction based on the category of viability. So viability keeps moving. Right? That, is what, that is part of what got Roe v. Wade in trouble, was that, was that viability kept moving earlier and earlier, and so permissions that, that, that were intuitive when they right when they only allow right when they said this this can happen only before viability all of a sudden right you had an outcome which said it's permissible at x number of weeks which which now conflicted right so the same thing is true with halakha you have to ask yourself when halakha sets a sets a boundary they're setting that boundary because that was the best approximation they could have for the what they were looking for you know we have more confidence what if it was just wrong uh, right but it's also just much more data uh, right much you know whether ranging from we might believe is increased is increased medical knowledge, um, right? Or you know, or just availability of data through um, through ultrasounds, um, right? Right. The whole question of knowing whether a pregnancy is ectopic or right or on, or on, all those sorts of questions, we have to decide. Well, there's a law, and we're just going to take the law as it is, and we apply it halakhically. And there's and or that there was a reason for that. We're going to try and recreate that reason. What I would say is, to the extent that we take the law just as a law. We're probably not thinking ethically. To the extent, right? If we want to think ethically, which which means we want to make an argument that ha, that has a, that there's room for it to participate in a an Ameri in an American in a broad American discourse about what everyone should do, then we probably need to think about reasons uh, more than if right, more than if we're just accepting accepting legal outcomes. Uh, okay. Question. Okay. So now. Sometimes issues get you know, extensive treatment all the way through history, and sometimes for reasons that are often not clear, even issues that had to have come up quite often do not generate much halachic discourse in terms of real-world questions. Uh, abortion, astonishingly, we have very, very few real-world questions about abortion. We have rulings in law books, but we have almost no responsa. And so it seems to me that just about the entire modern halachic discourse of abortion comes from this one tshuva of the Chavot Yair in the um, 16th century, right? Uh, sorry, 17th century, right? In the 17th century. Um, and it's really interesting, because you know, why, why are there not lots and lots of shilas coming, right, coming uh, that we have from the you know, 10th, through 15th, 10th through 16th centuries of people asking about, people asking about abortion? It could be because everyone knew the answers were obvious, but we don't know which way the answers were obvious. It could be that it's one of those. It could be that it's one of those things that um, rabbis preferred answering privately with and not writing down the answer to. Uh, and there's a reason for right. There's, like, there's a, a reasonable halachic strategy in many circumstances, which we'll all recognize, which is to, on the one hand. Make right create a real sense that this is something no one wants to do, and therefore, if somebody asks you the question, you know they must really mean it. You don't have to get right. You can just say it's, it's mutter immediately. Right, eating onion kipper. Right, you really want to build up how terrible it is eating onion kipper, and then when people come and ask you, "Can I eat onion kipper?" You assume, "Wow, they must really right, they must really be you know, be be at death's door if they're asking if they're asking that question." So it could be that we maintained a, a law on the books which made right, which where everyone assumed that abortion was forbidden. And um, and really, people really, whenever anyone asked, the, the circumstances were serious enough, 
Or it could be that that was a law in the books and, and there was an underground rebellion, which is what happens almost every time you try and mandate, right? We, we know, right, you know, that laws against abortion are, let's say, not radically more effective societally than laws against adultery. Right? The existence of a law, of an absolute law in the book doesn't mean it doesn't happen and it cannot happen because people are human or it cannot happen because people think it's wrong. Right? We don't, right? We just don't know. Yes, Deborah. Yeah, it has costs. Sometimes you make the barrier too high. I feel like with Yom Kippur in particular, we're experiencing rabbis trying to shift that right now because they're worried people will go the other direction. Could be, and it could be that that's a hidden critique of past halacha or not. I don't, I don't know. Um, certainly the case. Yeah, but you ma- managing expectations is part, of, is, is part of the way the legal system uh, sets up. On the, case, the question of abortion generally, right, it's not a secret that there, right, that in many societies there is a vast gap between what appears to be the law in the books and what actually happens in practice. So I'm just saying I don't, I don't know that wasn't the case in halakhic communities. I mean, that's part of what is trying to happen now and the people who, right, who are trying to rally uh, orthodox, um, orthodox opposition to Roe is telling all the stories. Right? You would imagine that this is really very rare, but look how many people in the... Right, in, right, in, or, in Orthodox society, how many women you know, right, who's from Kite, you respect, have had abortions? There's right. a bifurcated way of thinking about it in the Torah and even in modern days. Um, even in modern days when there were lots of people who having abortions, we have, on the other hand, this presumption that women want to go through great lengths to have children and to save them, and that even if they're, they're carrying a fetus that a doctor might say isn't viable, or you should abort, or you should do something, that there are women who say, no, I want to do other, I want to save this, and this is my baby, and I want to, so, so you've got women who, for whatever reason, need to get rid of the, of the fetus, and other women who want to go to extraneous circumstances to save the fetus. Yeah. So you, it's totally split. And so I, at some point you have to, that's why I guess the discussion table, so what is the fetus? What, what is the status of it? When, um, if you want to save it, is it because you're saving a life? If you want to destroy it, is it because it's not really a life? It, so that, you know, it's a complicated thing and people have you know, mixed feelings, different people, different societies have different feelings. And then the question is, so how much clarity does halacha give you about that, right? Is the, is the right question halachically, is it a life or not? Right? Is that the right word? We have to be always careful about translations. Right, they're very, very careful about translations. Right, right. Adam, is yeah, Adam versus a chai. Maybe right, Adam, a chai, a nefesh, a vlad, uh, right, an uber. Right, right. We have all we have all sorts of terms, right. And then the question is going to be: To what extent are those terms just terms of art and halacha, like shatnas? And to what extent are they attempts at reflecting something that has right, that 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 appeals to people outside the system? That's a really complicated question. Um, and you know, certainly the way halakha would in, within the Jewish community will come out to some degree will be a function. Uh, you know, when you have when people are suspicious, if you imagine, you know, then you know that that you know that for some some reason you think that people treat fetal life you know fetal life lightly because you think they've been too influenced by the society around you. You might you know tend to set up stricter standards as a as a guard. And on the other hand, we'll see that in this truva. And on the other hand, if you um, if you you know imagine like wow, what it would take you know, like people's lives are organized around child rearing, what it must take for somebody to come to the point of even asking the question, right? Then you'll set up standards differently. And you have a really complicated notion when you have both, when you have both categories, when you have extremes of uh, both categories. And we have, I, I think that, um, I think that IVF has presented something which is, you know, which, which really like brings it home because on the one hand, it's people going through agony and enormous expense to have children. And on the other hand, it diminishes the value of you know the individual the individual fertilized egg because you fertilize multiple egg, right right so that, right so that's like where you have you have those values clashing in ways that you really have not seen right uh, Dr. Rachel Winterman I think has been on several podcasts uh, lately talking about how you know the you know how bans on abortion enormously restrict fertility right fertility clinics. And that's a really right. That's one of the many one of the many ways in which we have tensions generated in modernity, that it's not clear past halacha could really, uh, right, could really address because you never had you never had cases like that where people you know, where it, we, we would have you know abortion for the sake of procreation. 
which we have now. Right? That's a right. That's a really deep question. Okay. So here's the so here we have the chavayir. Now the thing about the chavayir, which is really a challenge in and of itself, is that he has this right. He has a question. The question he asks is a married woman. Sorry for the early typo. Who become who becomes pregnant via? Uh, I think there's a makar sheet in the back. Uh, right. It becomes it becomes who becomes pregnant via um, adultery. Um, Right, so his case is not rape and incest. His case, his, his case is adultery, which creates a different set, right, a, a different set of sympathies. Right? The modern case you always ask is almost always rape and incest. Nobody really thinks in American context that adultery is enormous. You know, is it enormous is adultery a reason for, for, uh, for abortion? I don't know. I, I haven't heard anybody talk about an exception for adultery in, in, the, in the law in America, but that's his case. But you also have to, you have to ask yourself uh, whether this is a real case or not. The uh, Chavot Yair wrote fiction, um, and <laughs> some of his some of his Sha'elot seem pretty clearly to be the result of a literary imagination, and so it's very hard to know when he write when he writes a case whether he's actually talking about it. And this one has all the buildup, right? I asked, I right, I wrote it, I gave it to somebody else, somebody else gave it to me, right? Uh, I honestly can't, you know, I, I, I'm pretty clear that the Chavot Yair has some chuvot that um, even though they have a lot of drama in them, they are, uh, the drama is the product, is the product. I think there's the one chuvot, you know, where the, uh, the guy is going across the border and he's met by this, he's met by this woman and her daughter and they, um, and they, and they claim that they, uh, that they need, they need an escort across the border, or they'll have to pay an extra poll tax. But if they can pose, pose as his husband, as, as, but if the older woman can pose as his wife, then they'll be able to get across without being taxed. And the, then the, and the tax guard stops them and says, I don't believe you're really married to him. She's too old. Um, and he says, No, no, really, we're married. And he says, Okay, well, then you, right, then you, right, then you, should, you know, then you can kiss her. And she's Nida. <laughs> And the question, right, the question is, are you allowed? Are you allowed to, right, to create, right, to, to uh, create false intimacy in order to avoid, right? You know, maybe, maybe. On the other end, it's just, you know, maybe it's just a really fun story. Um, tough to know. He has a number of, he has a number of really dramatic, really dramatic ones like that. But here, he explicitly implies that it might be fiction, right? He always, the stories are always told, right? Somebody else told me this great story, oh. right? That's just part. It's, it's part of his. It's part of. It's a genre in his trivot. Which are themselves collections. He wrote massive amounts. We don't have a lot of what he, what he wrote, what he wrote about. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't. I, you can't assume that a chavot yair shaila is 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 actual. Uh, that was that's uh, you can't assume the other way either. But you can't assume it. You can't assume it's actual. Okay. So um, right. So you have this woman, right? But in the story, as he tells the story, right? A woman becomes pregnant by adultery. And now she really, really does tshuva, and she confesses to her husband, and she says, "I'll do whatever you tell me to do, except maybe carry this baby to t- carry the baby to term once there right, once there's a uh, once there's a baby." And she wants to she wants to swallow something chemically in order to um, in order to induce a miscarriage. Um, we don't know at this point at what stage in the process she is, just that she knows she's pregnant. Right, that's all we know. She knows she's pregnant. Um, she she right, She frames what it is as shel right to expel the cursed seed within her. Uh, now you could take zerahamikulal literally to mean sperm, as opposed to the right, as opposed to the fertil- the fertilized zygote. Um, right, so you could you could try and do whatever you want out of that, but I would suspect that um, that that's probably too um, too precise. Um, right? She means that she's pregnant and she wants to stop being pregnant and she knows she's pregnant and we don't know more than that. Okay. Rechavas Yair uh, starts off, right, which says, like, by, de- by denying that the question is real. <laughs> right? right? That's why you start getting suspicious, right? You know, where he tells you a real story that he's the one who says, no, no, this story can't possibly be real, you made that up. Uh, because no woman would ever ask a question like this. Uh, okay. Whatever way, whatever you want, that gives him an, that gives him an excuse for talking about the question about whether abortion would be different for mamzerim than it would be for other people. Right? Now that is not something that in, in modern sensibilities we don't tend to consider the possibility that mamzerim should be different than anybody else. But he assumes that no, the right he assumes, and this is like an interesting moral claim that nobody wants a mamzer to be born, including the parents. But that doesn't mean that you can't that abortion is permitted. 
It's an, right, so they, like this is a this is a, a moral polemic in the in the midst of it. Right? I acknowledge that the world will not be better because it's not a, it's not a it's not a defense. No, every person is better. Right, and even right, and even and, and you know even mamzerim have unique contributions in the world, and they'll go marry other mamzerim, and life will be great. It's no right. It's better for them not to be born, but that it's better for them not to be born doesn't mean that it's mutter to prevent them from being born. So that's I think whether or not you are moved by him in this specific circumstance. That's a right. That's a uh, we call a um, a uh, what's the word for it? Um, deontological, right? deontological moral argument, right? An argument that is in, that the morality or immorality of abortion is independent of consequences, right? And that's it, right? That's an important move, right? The claim, right? That when we think about this, right? There's certain kinds of moral questions where the right there's certain kind of moral issues for which the question. Is it better? Is it better if it ends up this way or not? Is irrelevant. Right? So I think that's a powerful one. He takes that. He takes that stand at this point that the question of whether the world is a better place, or even the question of whether it's better for this person to be born, is irrelevant morally. Now he says, okay, right? So, right? He says, right? So this is on, we're on page two, just before the the bold lines. Similarly, Tos was getting right in the name of Rabbeinu Tam that it is not an improvement of the world. It's not tikkun olam. For there to be more mamzerim, and nonetheless, that doesn't tell you that you're entitled that you're entitled to abort. Okay. Then he says, "I think, however, right, having gotten having gotten all these all, right all the polemics out of the way about the specific case, I think that the core of your question is general: whether there is a sin of destroying a nefesh in a case like this after she became pregnant, um, right, um, to to destroy the fetus and kill it and abort it." So there are a couple of interesting things about his rhetoric here, which I, I, I'm preserving the Hebrew. He says the question is if there's avon ibud nefesh. Now he knows perfectly well that the Gemara and o, that the Mishnah in Oalot says that it's not a nefesh, right? That right that before the head emerges, it's not a nefesh. But he nonetheless uses the language of ibud nefesh because it, right, which tells you that he is not comfortable translating that term nefesh into Right, that's the point at which you become a, a human life, a human life subject to things, and before that, not. Right, he thinks that that's a narrow use only in that context, and he's doing that. He's doing that deliberately. He also uses like you know, a whole series of verbs, um, right? Lekalkel ha'ubar. Okay, right. That's right. That that's you know the that's a neutral um, neutral language, right? To cause the to cause the fetus to rot. Ulahamito. And to kill it, right? So, right, so he's being very great. Right? Then he uses apilo, which is a specific abortion term, right? So, he's, so I think he's being very careful in his right, in his language. Um, with the he So on this question of whether it is permitted, right, we're on the we're on the, the the bottom of page two in the bold, right? Regarding this, it would be possible to make several distinctions. We could say, if forty days have already passed, um, right. As before, then they are mere waters. So we could say, look, within the first, for, first forty days, it's fine, and after forty days, it's not. We could say that. Or if she's already right, she's already more than three months pregnant. Or you could say, okay, until three months, right? That's basically the Roe v. Wade standard, right? Until three months is permitted, and afterwards, and after, and after, and afterwards, it's not. Roe v. Wade was about six months. Was it six Roe months? That's Yeah, but it has, it has two different standards, right? The, the standard gets much higher after three months, right? There are more restrictions. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Right. Yeah. So I don't know, right? I, I don't know if if, adult, if if that kind of psychological issue would have been enough. Post, okay, I shouldn't get tangled in the specifics of Ruby Wade, right? There's there's right there's a forty day standard, there's a three month standard, each of which we could have said is the standard for which, right? At, at, we would permit abortion up to this stage, but not afterwards, um, or maybe right? Maybe we can go a little bit past three months, um, right? If right, if we're talking about feeling movement movement in the womb. But he has this amazing one. And remember, this is really the only tshuva up to his time on the subject. Mikol makom, nonetheless. Ein ze mevukashenu, it is not our goal. Ladun midat note, to make a judgment on the basis of opinion. Right, it seems this way. And then an amazing line. Usvarat hakeres. And the reasoning of your gut. Rakal pidin Torah. But... He has no din Torah. Right, this is like an amazing moment, right? Like the, the question comes up, he confronts the question that the past literature is um, is insufficient, and he doesn't have an answer, 
Right, so right, so right, the question of what the line should be is going to end up being is end up being gut reasoning. Um, and the end, right? He introduces all sorts of other uh, other interesting uh, all sort of other interesting notions. Right, he ends up that halakhically there's a difference between it's not just a question of what stage of gestation it is. It also matters whether the mother is alive or dead. Um, right, it matters whether the fetus right whether the fetus has uprooted itself from the right from the, uh, right and is in the birth canal or is not in the birth canal. Um, right, the, right, it, which is different than the Mishnah's distinction between whether his head has emerged and his head has not emerged. And he has a whole set of distinctions, even at the last stage of it. Um, but he never really comes back to the question of how of how you deal with, of how you deal with it at the early stage. And the truth is, he contradicts himself in um, in several points about it. And I didn't quote this part, which was my fault. Um, then he says, you know what? Even if where it's permitted, but but they would never actually have said it was permitted because that would be terrible socially. Okay, so I read, so I wanted to, to get us to that point, right? That really all the literature he can cite is really all about the last stage. He has almost nothing directly on point about anything before the moment where it, the, you know, the moment where a woman goes into labor, right? Sits on the birthing stool, which which may be later than labor, right? Which may be labor with a, at a you know with a, at a certain point of dilation, right? The whole whole. Right, whole debates about what exactly Yoshev al Hamash bear means. So what do we have for earlier in the process? So he has 40 days and 40 nights, but 40, so what, where did 40 days and 40, what if, say it's 40 days, where does 40 days come from? So that's at the, um, at the very end, right, that's on uh, page 8. So 40 days shows up for, right, for the question, for a couple of purposes, um, whether a woman uh, has to sit the proper, the proper clean and unclean days based on whether you had a male or Female uh, or female child, or whether we just treat this as regular nida and not as and not as pregnancy, and other contexts in which the question is whether a um, right, whether whether a, um, a woman is allowed to go back, uh, a widow is allowed to go back and eat uh, truma, right, the, the the daughter of a coin, right, or whether she is still related to right to her, uh, to her dead, right, related now to her dead husband's child, which makes her Israel, uh, right, right, um, for these purposes. You can't even talk about that consistently because we have the law, which is where he's part of the other thing about the Ben Sorera More, where you say that you can only be a, um, a Ben Sorera More at the stage where it is appropriate to call, uh, to call you son and not father. And that gets us, right, that gets us 90, day, right, 90 days in, three months, right, at the moment that, uh, at the moment that, it would, that um, you have been an adult long enough that you could be called a father, which is when pregnancy shows. Now that's the same kind of issue, right? Do you have a child or not? We could say that's from the perspective of whether the man has a child, the 40 days is the perspective of whether the woman has a child, but it's really hard to define any of this in terms of human life, right? These are incidental questions about, right, about whether someone has a child, which is not the same as the question of whether the fetus, which we are calling a child, uh, is, in some way, is, is in some way homicide to kill. And we don't have any, what I'd argue is we don't have any translatable category that you would, that if, you weren't, if you were not engaged in internal halakhic reasoning, it would not be obvious to anybody that these are gradations of humanity. Deborah, what did you want to ask? I wanted to ask you, the time when you call somebody a father might be more connected to when the neighbors know about it than to what its metaphysical state is. It might be completely irrelevant to our issue. Might be. And the time, right, and the time when a woman has a child I, it's not, you know, the same, we say this time as one of the child, and we also say, right, that if, a, that if a woman has committed a capital crime that considerably past 40 days, we execute her because the fetus is just part of her body. Right, so we have a statement the fetus, that the fetus is still part of her body going very deep into the pregnancy process, maybe up to the moment of Yosheva, right, it seems like it, Yosheva al Mashbeir, the Gemara says, right, that she's in, until, right, until, until she's in you know, some serious stage of labor, the fetus is still just a part of her. And yet, if the fetus is her husband, right, is her husband's fetus, so she's a mother. Right, maybe really? Maybe a mother, maybe mother or father is a cultural category. Okay, maybe mother, right, so, and it's a different cultural category for fathers and for mothers, and we can set up a whole elaborate scheme, but there's no necessary reason any of that should relate to abortion. Right, now we can go from the other way, right, if it's right, so the last source I gave you is, right, we can start, we can start in the opposite direction, and we can find sources that at every stage of the process refer to failure to allow a 
a process that could lead to procreation to be completed as shrichut damim. So we can right we can move shrichut damim all the way back. We can certainly move it. We can move it back to the moment of seminal emission. We can certainly move it to the moment of, to the moment of conception, fertilization. Right? Now this is aside from issues. Right? If if you're viewing shrichut damim not so much as the removal of an existing life, which is what we've started from, right? Pashufech dam adam. We move it back to the prevention of potential life, which is what happens when people tie it into right vatempru revu. Right, so then we, right, we can introduce all sorts of, of, of different kinds of distinctions. Some of them are lenient. Like ectopic pregnancies are no problem because they're not potential life. Right, yes? But that brings up the question then of um, like plan B. Mm-hmm. Will that a woman's case to prevent getting pregnant? Sure. Is that an abortion or is that just not pregnant? Absolutely right. We don't know the answer to that yet. We can, as I said, we can do it at any stage of the process. Right. Yeah, we can take it, right? We can. <laughs> you don't need to have actually ever been in the same room as a member of the opposite gender to be committing murder. Yeah, right. Every, mo- every moment that you as a lab technician are not combining every sperm in its petri dish with, right, with every egg in its petri dish, right? You are. And so he'd view diaphragms as being. Now we can get into all sorts of debate barrier methods as opposed to spermicides, right? And then we can also make the same between women and men. Right, maybe the right proof only applies to men, right? Maybe right, so it's so very likely, and that's in fact how we rule in terms of right, or a standard ruling in terms of contraception, is that it's right. There are many things that are easier for, right, for women than men. What I, right, but what I'm trying to set out here is that if we're not engaged in a purely internal halachic discourse, just following the, the following the, the lines of previous halachic conversation. There's nothing here that necessarily relates to the underlying ethical issue. Right, there's not, right? And, we, and it's very hard to translate any of these categories. What you have are two different places. You have a place which defines something, you have, a, you have a rhetorical moment that defines the very end of the, somewhere towards the very end of the process at least, as Shrikhut Damim. And then you have rhetoric which has been interpreted in all sorts of ways, even in the context of Jews, as, right, um, as moving Shrikhut Damim all the way to the beginning of the process. And you can set up historical bifurcations, right? Kabbalists, uh, particularly, right? Kabbalists starting in the 16th century are extremely, extremely, extremely machbid about Hatzad Zer Levatala. And they, they talk about Shvi Chutamim, right? You have a Gemara about that. You bring the Mabul, uh, right? The Shulchan, right? The, the Beis Yosef is very into that. You have a pushback among some contemporary uh, figures who argue uh, because of contemporary psychological insights that uh, the attempt to make Hatzad Zer Levatala induce that kind of guilt, right? Is really unfortunate psychologically, at least for men. Right, and so you have all you have you have a whole bunch of uh, you have a whole bunch of um, public public books right put out arguing that this right that we need to we need to remove the emphasis on these kind of things uh, halakhically and replace it with a with a more psychologically uh, up to date notion. I have friends who've written books like that. Uh, on the other hand, right, I think Yeshiva still has a chug just to people trying right just for boys trying to stop with Zazer Levatella, and there is uh, you know a famous book which got parodied on uh, Shabbatnikim. Um, right, which you know, which um, goes to which still goes to full extremes about that. Um, what I'm trying to do is, you know, is not to, at least not in advance of next week, not to take a position on the question. But uh, right, what I want to what I want to show here is that even if if you have even if you start with the assumption that you can't end up with differences in Jews and non-Jews, you can do that in two ways. You can do it by saying, okay. Well, right. You can say that that since it's, right, since it since it's shrichut damim, since anything that's called shrichut damim is aser for non-Jews, and shrichut damim starts at the very beginning of the process, therefore everything must be aser for Jews. Right. You can start by saying that since we have no evidence that shrichut damim for non-Jews begins earlier than, very least, you know, deeply into labor. So then, okay, everything for Jews, there must not be any right. There must not be any prohibition on that scale either. Then we could talk about what other kinds of scales, what other kinds of prohibitions we could come in for Jews, but they're not going to be homicide, and right, they're not going to be shichut tamim, and so they'll be permitted, permitted for all sorts of other uh, for all sorts of other reasons. Um, and but the, and if those distinctions are not related to anything human or ethical, so then we'll have a question about to what extent do we wish to um, make them part of American discourse? They matter to us, whether they're strict or lenient. Um, right. If it turns out that you're allowed, you know that, that abortions are mutter because otherwise you won't be able to go to Shulonim Kippur. Do we need to build that exception into the law? 
I don't know. Right, right, right. There are all sorts of things, right? Which might, you know, if you, once you remove the issue from the homicide axis, there are all sorts of reasons where, right, where we might think there's a really re- important religious value, but it's not a human value; it's just religious value. Uh, we might try to universalize it, you know, but then we have all the all sorts of questions. We, always, you know, you always have to try to universalize it. So, what would be the equivalent for a Catholic of the right of being able to of being able to um, eat meat on a right, eat meat on a, on Yantu? Okay, communion is a really serious thing, right? 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 You know that right, that might be equal to something much more powerful than eating meat on Yantu. Right? I'm just, I mean, it's a divorce. Well, so you can do it. I, I don't want to get into this, but I just okay. So, so here's takeaway: as we takeaway, the halacha for non-Jews about abortion really there's only just one term: when it's shrikut damim, they can't do it. We should be careful, be clear that there is no definition halacha of what that means. All we know is that there is one, at least one moment in time, which could be just be right the moment before the head emerges. Right? That is Shrikutamim, and that's Asr for non-Jews, and it could be everything else is permitted for non-Jews. And anything and for Jews, uh, right, assuming that we work with the parallel principle, whatever the prohibition is, is going to be something built up from Hotsad Zera and not an extension of Shrikutamim back earlier in the process. Or we could say that the one term we have is shrichut tamim, and we have rhetoric that moves shrichut tamim all the way back to the earliest stage of the process, and, there, and we think that should extend to non-Jews, and therefore we would have the same rules for Jews. Um, because, the, because the term is shrichut tamim, and that term exists halachically primarily in a, uh, in a non-Jewish context, which means it's not elaborated at all, there really isn't so much. We have, it, we have a lot of other halachot, in terms, of, in terms of Jewish relationship to fetuses, which we could, if we choose, import to try to create what I would call the analog switch of shrichut tamim, where things are more or less shrichut tamim and things are more or less permitted, right? We will end up saying things like, well, you know what? Abortion, of, abortion to avoid the shame of having an adulterous child or because we think adulterous children are problematic. Well, so that's okay up until, say, three months. But, right, but abortion because of economic indications is not. Uh, but we should be clear, right? That would be a svarta keres, right? We don't, right, we don't, we don't have a precedent for importing that category into it. We can make that decision about what halacha should be, and now we have the interesting notion because we're we're essentially making that decision not in the confines of our own community, but we're making our decisions in the confines of a broader human community, and the question is how that should affect our determination of the of the halacha. So that's what I'm going to try and talk about um, next week about the ways in which. Um, right, the two things we've gotten out of the, for the first week is that what we think the halakha is is not necessarily what we think the law should be. And the second is that, um, in, that in many ways the halakha as it exists is indeterminate. Uh, right, we're making choices about it. So next week we're going to talk about so what granted that, right, grant, granted those issues, what is it that we might be able to contribute as, uh, as Orthodox Jews to a conversation um, about abortion in the United States? Yes, Amy? One issue that I've always heard that you've totally left out of this is when you actually are considering this fetus as a rodent. Yeah. So if it's a rodent, it's the same as as a, an adult that um, a fully formed adult who is a murderer who is chasing you and shooting. You know, like in the in the, te- in the when you've got a, a mass murder, somebody right. is killing you, kill them before they kill you. Sure. So. Um, so what happens is it's not murder. It, it is killing, but it's not murder because you're killing a road egg. But then legally you have to decide, well, at what point are they a road egg? Are they a road egg when you first discover their existence or are they not the road egg until they're coming out and physically causing the harm? So that, I'm not sure that would be the distinction. There are many distinctions within road egg. We have to address two kinds of questions. One is, can the laws of road egg be different for Jews and non-Jews? Right. For some people, it's obvious they are, and for some people, it's ob- you know, which I would put myself in, it's obvious that they shouldn't be. Um, but within halakha, it's not hard to construct an argument in which the laws of Rodev are different for Jews and non-Jews if you want to. And the second question is, Rodev is a technical category. Do you want to start with the laws of Rodev and then end up saying, okay, you know what, sometimes we'll allow the mother to die rather than abort because, right, because in, technically it's not a Rodev in this case. And we're going to leave it in that order. We say no. Like we know, there, we know that the outcome has to be that right that you will always choose the mother's life over the fetuses, uh, right? And therefore, rodef is a meta, is a kind of metaphor, 
but not actually a technical halacha because we're not willing. Right? And that comes, you know, the 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 um, I'll give you the, the simplest case of that. Right? We can talk about it more next week. It's a terrible case, but the simplest case of that is where uh, the mother has cancer, and the fetus is not in any way threatening the mother's life, just that taking chemotherapy will right right. So that's a case if you had that in this community. Right. But if you use Rodave, but there's you can't do that. Too, like right, if a doctor at the outset, I know this woman who you know she's got already um, she's got 10 children but after the first child the doctor said to her you're very high risk with pregnancy is really a problem do not have another child so if she followed that doctor but she didn't get pregnant then yeah so that's all right that, that's right somebody, somebody other, we could answer all those questions very technically and it's not clear that that result is one that would appeal to us uh, right, and it's not clear that that's, right, that that's an argument that that's an argument that we want to make in the American context. That the right, that the question of whether right, this is part of the issue that's coming up now, because um, right, if you as when people try to legislate, so Catholics have a very well developed jurisprudence of Rodev, uh, right, which is not the same as the halachic jurisprudence, and the, you know, and so people are saying, look, how do we know, right? How do we know whether the, right, if you write the law that says that, right, that says essentially right in your terms that you can abort to save the life of the mother if the fetus is right if the fetus is a clear and present danger well that requires it right there I can, I can imagine lots of circumstances where the mother's life is in danger but the fetus doesn't pose a danger it's the circumstance that poses a danger right that right so we have to figure out whether you want that kind of parochial definitions um, right to be right to be part of the general discourse uh, right I happens to be that one of my great shurim I think is about one of my favorite shurim of all time is about Rodif in the context of abortion but while you know, but while it's a really, I think a really good shear, it may be that it's not a good way to paskin uh, generally, and it's particularly not a good way to paskin for a context that includes both uh, both Jews and non-Jews. All right, thank you very much again for coming, and I hopefully we'll see you at the final one next week. <laughs>